and welcome to the Bright Minds of E-Commerce podcast. I'm Dana, founder of Bright Red Marketing, your e-commerce advertising specialists. Today we are here with Tasha from Jubbleumph. Tasha started Jubbleumph in 2009 selling handmade jewellery at Melbourne Craft Markets and in the last 10 years has grown her brand to six figures and being stocked in hundreds of stores worldwide. Jubbleumph makes little reminders that you can wear every day, reminders that you are smart, and brave, and strong, and reminders to celebrate the things that make us different, because they are our strengths. I love everything Jubbly Ump stands for, and I'm so excited to share Tasha's story. So, let's get into it. Welcome to episode 13. Hi, and welcome to the Bright Minds of E-Commerce podcast. Today, we are here with Tasha from Jubbly Ump. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So for those people who don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about Jubbly Umph and how it started? Um, so Jubbly Umph is an Australian brand and I basically create art pins and t-shirts to help people express themselves and be proud of their passions. So whether it's um, their book lovers or craft addicts um, or people who just feel a bit different from everyone else in society, you're my my people basically. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So how did the like concept start? How did it turn from just a thought to a full-blown business? Um, so originally I sort of started business because I really, really didn't want to get a real job. I didn't want to go and work in an office um, and i just come back from travelling overseas and I thought I want to start making my own jewellery. So I handmade some jewellery and started selling them at um, Melbourne Markets. Awesome. And how did that turn into what Jubbly Ump is now? Uh, it's been a very gradual process. So I've been running the business for about 11 years now. And there was a real evolution from sort of maker to manufacturer and then really growing the brand and the brand identity. Um, and it's been a really gradual process. I didn't start off doing any marketing courses or business courses. It was all just um, learning things all the time. And uh, once I went more online and really concentrated online, growing um, and trying to find sort of my people out there. And it was much easier, actually, when I went online. <laughs> yeah. So how did you kind of find that process of going online and, you know, really, I mean, you're really starting to scale now. Kind of how has that developed? Um, I think really putting effort into, once I realised I needed to, well, firstly, that I was running a business. There's a big leap I think a lot of people make between being a maker to a business person. And once you realise that what you're doing is actually running a business, um, I then started concentrating on understanding a little bit more about that, about sort of customer acquisition and really speaking directly to the the people who are part of my, I don't like the word tribe, but (laughs) the the group of people out there. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So obviously you create kind of collections of products. If you haven't seen Tasha's products, you have to go look at her website. Her stuff's amazing. Um, But tell us a little bit about that creative process of creating a new collection. Um, So I always do a collection around a theme. And a lot of the time uh, we sort of have hidden meanings in in the design. So our biggest um, product is enamel lapel pins. And they're just small pins that you could wear on a jacket or a shirt or you could have it on your bag. Some people wear it on the inside of their collar, so it's like a secret message. And each pin will have its own little message to it. So one of my most popular ones is called, it's a little sword and it says fighting invisible battles on it. And a lot of people will wear that as a little um, 
a little memento throughout the day. So if they're going to have a hard day or they need to get out and about, uh, that's what they wear. So I usually start with a concept and I knew that I wanted one that would be like about fighting battles every single day. And then I would sketch out a design from that. Um, the basis of the collection would come around a theme. So we did sort of that, that one was part of a mental health theme. Um, and each one of them was uh, representing something that people faced every single day. So, for example, there's the fighting invisible battles. I had one called anxiety expert, um, which was to represent people with anxiety. I had a little spoon one, which was to represent people with chronic illnesses. And each collection sort of um, evolved like that. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> no, I, I, I love your collections. Every time you release one, they're always really interesting to kind of see all of the pieces come together. So it's it's interesting to hear that process behind it all. Uh, something that we know a lot of our podcast listeners always want to know is when you went online the first time. So obviously you've been building up a bit of a bit of a brand and a bit of your first kind of customers at the markets and things. But when you first went online, how did you kind of get those first kind of online customers? So initially just from the markets. Um, as soon as I started doing market stalls, I knew I had to have a website. So that was always a priority. Um, and with every sale that I made at a market, I would hand a little business card or a thank you card with a discount code and tell people that I had a website. And then I'd gradually build up a mailing list and um, this was the very early days of Facebook as well, um, yeah. a Facebook page. So people would follow the Facebook page. It used to be the days when we could just post something and people would buy it. it Back amazing. when it was so easy to get engagement. Missed those days. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yeah, I used to just post a picture of something and a link to my website and people would buy directly from that almost yeah. every time. Um so that was a really good initial way. And then I'd post on Facebook as well of what market I'm going to be at next. Yeah. Um, and that was a really good way of initially getting people to the website and build up a marketing list. Yeah, I love that your first kind of your first customers really came from that kind of personal connection of meeting people at markets and then funneling them into yeah. your website. I love that. I still have people who met me for the first time at we used to do Rose Street Artist Market in Fitzroy. And I still have people that still buy and still follow and still come and say hi to me at other events. Yeah. That, you know, join then. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. How much has your product changed since then? Like, is it still very much along the same sort of lines or is the, the product range changed since then? The product range changed in terms of what I offer. Um, I originally started out um, hand making jewelry. So it was necklaces, earrings, um, some brooches as well. And it sort of evolved every couple of years. I've changed a little bit. I've changed the style. I've changed the artwork. It's all loosely sort of tattoo-based. So a lot of the designs look a little bit like tattoo designs. Yeah. And that's a style that I, I really love um, in jewellery. And when I first started, it was all based around the idea of you could have a little, a little thing like a tattoo that you could wear every day, but you didn't have to commit to a tattoo. Yeah. Um, so... It went from the evolution of um, jewellery, uh, then I did some handbags. Um, I did a range of wallets and handbags and then T-shirts and then tote bags and now lapel pins. Yeah, amazing. Um, so when you started to move your business online, is there anything that you'd wish you'd kind of done in those days of your business that would have made scaling now easier? Like are there any lessons that you've learned that other people listening can now avoid from hearing your stories? I wish I'd learnt about marketing earlier. 
um, I sort of had a vague sense of of what it was to market to people, but the idea of really capturing their data, like their data, as in an email address or something that you control, um, and then using that to market to. Even though I was doing that, I didn't really understand what I was doing. And if I'd had a better understanding of that earlier on, um, I think I'd have a very different business today. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good lesson, I think, especially the way Facebook's going too. You know, if you'd yeah. put all of your money and all of your time and investment into just building up that Facebook page organically and wasn't and you weren't collecting email addresses, when Facebook's kind of algorithms changed, you don't own that. So it's really, yes. I suppose, a, a, an important thing for people to know is to make sure you're collecting things that you own. Yes. And yeah. it's um, it's the most personal way you can get in touch with people as well. I mean, everybody has an email account. And if they trust you enough to give you their email address, it's a really powerful way to communicate with them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I know a lot of people say, oh, email open rates aren't that great anymore. Um, but I was at a marketing conference the other day and they're like, are email open rates not great anymore or are you just sending meaningless rubbish content? Yeah. And I think a lot of people true. are just sending meaningless rubbish content to people that probably shouldn't be on the list in the first place and wondering why their email rates are so low. Um, the yeah. clients that we have that send emails get really great email rates because they're sending the right kind of content to the right kind of people and I imagine that's similar with your audience. I mean, I always open your emails. <laughs> yeah, I get roughly 35 to 40% open rates. Yeah, and unheard of industry speaking. Yeah, um, and I think it's you're right. It's all about providing value to people. Like it's it's not about you. It's about them, and yeah. they're the most important people out there. Um, and I think a lot of marketers forget that. A hundred percent. And you got to remember, you're sending an email to someone who's probably receiving twenty, thirty other emails that day. Like, why yes. would I want to read yours instead of someone else's, or just delete yeah. them all? Like. That's why, why I'll use a lot of emojis in mine too because emojis really stand out. <laughs> we love emojis. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, all righty. So I know that you have faced a lot of copycats over the years. Is there yeah. anything that you do to kind of help protect yourself? I mean, I know that a lot of your audience kind of have your back on that one and kind of inform you so you can do things about it. But is there anything that you do to kind of protect yourself from that? I think copycats are sort of inevitable, especially if you've got something that's really unique. And I mean, there are a couple of things you can do about it. You can definitely try and stop it where possible. Um, It's great when your audience are right on the ball. And like you said, a lot of my customers will message me as soon as they see, like they recognize the designs. Um, And then we try to get on top of it as quickly as possible. Um, But unfortunately, with companies like AliExpress, things get ripped off and there's it can be really hard to fight that. Um, yeah. In the long run, I think you've just got to move on and you've got to be constantly bringing out new things. If you yeah. just concentrate on old stuff you've done and trying to protect that endlessly, it can be really draining. So I'm all about killing off old designs um, once I feel like they've, they've run their course and just keeping making new things for people all the time. Yeah, I love that attitude around it because obviously you, you, there's not too much you can do if someone like AliExpress picks it up because um, by the time yeah. they've picked it up, 20 of them have picked it up and it's a different country. Yeah. It's very hard. So I love the attitude around it. I think that's really good. And you do have a great audience of people who have your back. Yeah, they're the best. <laughs> they are the best. Um, so obviously art's a huge part of your business. You're obviously very talented with you know that side of things. 
Do you have any other creative projects outside of quote unquote business? Like did this kind of take away the fun of art or have you still got other art projects that you love? Um, I'm not great with doing art projects just at the moment. Every time I sit down to do something, it ends up being for my business. Yeah. Um, I am working on another book, but that will still sort of be part of my business. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm very focused on on growing my business because that is my career as well. So yeah. um, I don't really have um, I, I'm gardening. I suppose that's my that's great. <laughs> thing that not be business in any way. And that's what I do when I'm I'm trying to get out of it. <laughs> that's awesome. So obviously you are still a very creative person. Has it taken some of the fun out of it or is it more fun for you now because you get paid to do the art side of things? There are definitely times when it takes some of the fun out of it. Um, when I'm under a deadline and I have to complete artwork and I don't have my head around it yet, it can be really stressful. Um, but for the most part, I really enjoy it and I really enjoy the creative process. Um, and usually we were talking about the development of collections. Often I have an idea in my head and I'm sketching things down months and months in advance of actually starting the work. So it is quite a long process getting, getting the idea behind something right first. Um, and I do really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, I can't just sort of sit down and do something really quickly most of the time. But, I mean, it's exciting to be able to do art whenever I want and as a career. Yeah. I think that's that's every artist's dream is to be able to have a a career out of that. So that's really cool. Um, You have built pretty much a cult-like audience. Is there anything (laughs) that you think you have done to build such an involved and invested audience that maybe others can learn from? I think really listening to your audience is very important. Um, they will tell you everything you need to know about marketing to them if you only ask them. And we do things like we do surveys of our customers to find out not just would they buy this, would they buy that. In fact, we almost never ask those questions. It's all about like what are you passionate about, what cause is close to your heart, you know, what movies do you like to watch, things that people are really excited to talk about. Um, and I think when you when you get those answers out of people, it really um, connects you to them. So um, I think really finding that sort of small group of people, the the niche they call them, I suppose, um, and really understanding them and um, creating things for them specifically, uh, that's been a big part of it. Yeah, is that where you get some of your inspiration for those collections? Is from those kind of surveys? Yes, definitely. Yeah, the mental health collection in particular, which was a really big one for me last year, and it was really hard to do because I've had a lot of problems with anxiety myself um, and I was really nervous about launching that collection. It went really well because I had so much feedback from, we've got um, a Facebook group as well, and I throw ideas at them and I show them my sketches and they help with the design process and they were really fundamental to making sure that those designs came out just right. Yeah. That's amazing. So you said you've got a, a big Facebook group and they're helping you with that kind of collaborative process. Are there any kind of like pros and cons to having that level of involvement? Obviously, there's some some really significant pros. Is there like any downsides to that or how do you kind of manage that, I suppose? Um, yeah, it can take a bit to manage a group like that. And I do have help managing it, which is great. Um, you've got to be right on the ball if any arguments break out. It's very rare in my group because 
we've sort of cultivated the type of atmosphere we want. Yeah. Like there's no nastiness, there's no sort of negativity to it. The, everybody who's part of that group really enjoys being part of the group as far as I know. Um, so it, it's more just the management. Like you've got to engage with people a lot. Um, we don't like to make it salesy too much. Like occasionally I'll throw a few things in there that will be a group special, but it's more about really being in touch with my diehard biggest fans. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Uh, so you were recently featured in a Facebook case study, which is very exciting, um, for using yep. your Facebook ads to expand into the US. Can you tell us a little bit more about that expansion process and then also what it's like to be approached by Facebook? Because that's really cool. um yeah it was a great experience um we ran a case study where we were doing a split test between two different audiences one which was a lookalike audience and the other which was a broader audience looking at um specifically people who liked books and crafts which are my customers um and we just ran it for 10 days and we came out with some really firm conclusions that the lookalikes are is the best audience to use and then Facebook put that all together into a beautiful document and published it so yeah it was a really good experience yeah amazing amazing um is there anything else that you think we haven't covered that our listeners might like to hear about the the journey of Jubbleumph how you kind of scaled your business any of the behind the scenes those sorts of things um I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. <laughs> I think anybody who's run a business for 11 years and hasn't made any mistakes is probably lying to you. What um, are some of these mistakes that other people can learn? You don't have to go through <laughs> them all because I've been in business for 10 um, years. I know there's also lots of mistakes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think mistakes is one of those things that people should actually talk a bit more about because especially when I was starting out in business, you look at the big players and you just think, oh, they're amazing. They've never done anything wrong and it's just not true. Yeah. One of my biggest ones was we overinvested in stock a few years ago uh, when we were doing handbags. And firstly, they take up so much room. So we had like a whole room in my my studio taken up with a wall of handbags. It was 400 uh, that we were left with that was sort of dead stock and I just couldn't sell it. And we had taken out a loan for it as well. And um, it just, it was the thing that I, I could not get rid of. <laughs> and eventually. Um, like we just had them hanging around for ages and ages and ages and they were beautiful handbags it was just really hard to sell them yeah and that was probably the biggest mistake you know I didn't ask for customer feedback when I was designing them so the designs I brought out weren't the right ones um and then it turns out that hard handbags are actually quite hard to sell because most people only have one that they use at any given time <laughs> so yes sort of mistakes like that <laughs> point where we were, we were in a lot of debt over it and it could have gone the wrong way and you know we, we could have maybe not gone gotten through it yeah I think that's I think that's a good lesson though in that ask your audience so that you know what they actually want before kind of overstocking something like I think that's a lesson yeah. a lot of small startup e-commerce businesses could learn from and even big scaling ones that they might have a great idea and they go and buy a huge amount of stock for something that's not tested yep that's exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah. But it's a lesson that's learned that you will never, ever make again. And it turned out okay in the end by the sound of it. Yes, it did. We managed to move all the bags um, pretty much at cost price. 
Um, and I announced that I was never stocking bags again, and that's what did it. That's what <laughs> this is it. to buy them. <laughs> Last chance, people. You're never getting a handbag ever again. Yep, that was it. Yep. What but I really say? appreciate that everybody sort of stepped up and helped us out of that situation because I put out a bit of a heartfelt post and explained um, sort of how bad it was, and people really came through and supported us, which was great. Yeah, that's amazing. You do you do have a wonderful community around you. So that's, I mean, and it's a testament to how you've built your business, really. So that's that's really cool. Um, all right, it's going to get into the last couple of questions that we ask everyone. Uh, do you have yeah. any secret strategies, routines, or habits that you use every day to help you stay on track in business or just in personal life? Um, I don't know about secret strategies. <laughs> I'm not great at, I'm like not a meticulous planner of a person. I sort of have a, a list that goes in my head all the time, but I've started using Trello on a day-to-day basis to keep track of sort of the three most important things I should be doing for the day. And that's made a big difference to having a bit more focus. Yep. Um, so I think there's some great apps out there that can really help you along in business. And if you can find the ones that work for you, then stick with them. <laughs> That's it. I think that's it. I think everyone kind of gets too stuck in trying to do everything and having 17,000 different apps because that's what everyone else does. Just finding the one that works for you can make such a big difference. Yes. Um, and I also like asking that question because I feel like it just gives people a real answer. Like you don't have this like mythical diary that's organized in 17 point form to like organize your business. Like you have a Trello board with three things and that's what you do to keep on track. Like I think it kind of yeah. normalizes the fact that we're not all superheroes that have crazy advanced systems and things. Like we're all just kind of doing what we can. Yes. I still make lo- not the, sorry notes on little bits of paper and leave them all over the place. <laughs> and uh, remembering occasionally to put it on the Trello board has been what's brought it all together. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I also love that you went from like paper notes to basically an online sticky board. Like that's what Trello is. It's just like yes. notepads yep. on a screen. That's exactly Great. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have a favorite business book? Um, I think there was one that was really part of my turning my business around because when I went this from the sort of maker position to the I run a business position, it is a real mind shift and um, a big help to that was the, um, oh, what's it called now? <laughs> <laughs> now that you've put me on the spot, um, no, the e The e I can't remember Brilliant the author off the top of my head. But it's, mm. it's one of those ones that's been around forever and they've actually done a lot of different versions for different industries and it's really basically written out and explains to you exactly what sort of business that you're running and it it had the effect of really turning my brain around to be I don't just want to be a maker forever who just um, is constantly there at a desk making jewellery. I actually want it to be bigger than this and I want to have it more meaning than that. So, yeah, yeah that was a big one for me. Yeah, it's a very, very good book. So that's no, a good recommendation. Uh, Favourite podcast? Um, I really like How I Built This because it's all about interviews with people who built really big companies, usually in America, and sort of their entrepreneurial journey. And there's not a one of them that went through and said, oh, I didn't make any mistakes. They usually tell you about how they almost lost their company five times and they made 20 mistakes and they almost went bankrupt. And I find that motivational. (laughs) 
I think it's real though. Like I, I really hate listening to stories where everyone's like, oh, look at me. I'm so successful and look at all the amazing things I did. Like that's not real. <laughs> like when did you yeah, really and you lose can- everything? Yeah. So that's my favourite one. I'm constantly waiting for the next episodes to come out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good one. Um, awesome. And if people want to come find you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can come visit my website. It's www.jubly-umph.com. Um, I usually have to spell it because people usually go, jubbly what? <laughs> <laughs> We'll also put the link in the show notes, people. (laughs) If people can remember my business name, then you're in the club. (laughs) I like it. I like it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 13th episode of the Bright Minds of E-Commerce podcast. Don't forget, we load all of the links and show notes onto our website. You can find everything at www.brightredmarketing.com.au forward slash show notes forward slash episode 13. The link will also be available in the episode description. Thanks so much for listening.